0: Thanks be to God. So, I, I know we have a weird Old Testament passage this morning, and um, I'm going to… Huh, I need like another whole music stand here. Okay. Um, and uh, I, I'm going to spend just a, a couple minutes on that weird passage for us, and I, I want to begin by pointing out um, a little detail, a couple details maybe you didn't notice. Um, the first detail is, um, as I, I tried to allude, all of the locations and places that uh, we heard and people groups we heard named in Genesis 10 um, can be mapped out. And so, somebody did this work. It wasn't me. I stole this from Bible Project, but I've got a map of the different locations of the three sons, Japheth, Shem, and Ham, which is pretty cool. Uh, And uh, actually, here comes my technology. This is going to be great. I have a little laser pointer. Ha! Look at that. Okay. So, um, I want you to notice that right here is the land of Canaan, okay? And and this is Israel where our ancestors lived, where Jesus lived, etc. Initially, that is in the the people group of Ham. Um, But Shem over here, this is the people group from which the Israelites will come, the people of Eber, all right? Uh, and then uh, Japheth, these coastlands, and the northern areas, that's Japheth's, that's Japheth's lands, if you will. Um, what, what Moses is trying to do in this description is not just give an explanation of, of, of how the world came to look like it does in his time. He's also trying to make a theological point. Um, so I, I don't know, if we went through and, and counted all of these little names again, I'm not saying all those words again, so that's not going to happen. but if we went through and counted all those names, or if you just read through Genesis 10 and counted every child of Ham, Shem and Japheth, um, anybody want to guess how many children there would be? Anybody counted as we went? Come on, L.J, what do you got? It's all right, you can guess. What do you think? Ten is a good guess, but it's more than that. It's actually. Oh, come on, Asher, what do you got? 30 is closer, but it's going to be more than that. It's going to be, it's going to be 70, okay? There's 70 families. Um, by the way, this is very intentional. I don't know if you noticed, but um, our author even tells us that, right? Moses says… Um, From these, the coastland people spread, right? He's saying, I'm not going to bother to name everybody. I want to particularly name these 70. So in the Bible, 70 is a big number, right? We like seven, the number of completion, the number of days of creation, Um, but we like 70 as well. Um... There are 70 descendants of Israel that go into Egypt at the end of Genesis. There are 70 elders that go into the mountain on Mount Sinai to meet with God. Uh, Jesus sends 70 disciples out uh, to share the gospel. Uh, this, this idea of 70, again, like seven, it's, it's a number of completeness. And, and what Moses is trying to say here is, um, this is the whole of humanity. Um, and, and in a weird way, even though we are... Um, We descended into all these different people groups, we're still one family. Uh, And and, and this is maybe best said by uh, Nahum Sarna. He says, this strangely perplexing miscellany of peoples, tribes, and places is no mere academic or scholastic exercise. It affirms, first of all, the common origin and absolute unity of humankind after the Flood. It also asserts that the varied ways that humans divide themselves are all secondary to the essential unity of the international community, which truly constitutes a family of man. So, I think part of the message that Moses wants to convey in this part of Scripture is that all of humanity is supposed to be united. We start out as one family. Uh, And we're going to see there are a couple of ways that we can stay united, Um, some of them good, some of them not so good. Okay, but since we're talking about genealogy this morning, um, I want to change gear and talk about my genealogy. So, my mom and my aunt um, Nancy, my mom's sister, spent a ton of time, and they put together this like massive binder of our family history. It's really cool. Uh, And I thought about just reading this genealogy to do today, but I'm not going to. But it has incredible stories that go back for um, four of sort of our ancestral peoples that go back all the way to the 16, 1500s, Um, and it's, it's so neat. There's stuff in this story that I'm really proud of, and there's stuff in this story I'm, I'm pretty ashamed of. It's um, fascinating to hear my own family's history. I don't know if you've done this before, but it's a really cool thing if you do. One of the things that's been really neat for me in this um, has been those places where my family rubbed shoulders with like really famous great people, Okay? Um, So, I want to tell you one quick story about how my family connected uh, to uh, greatness. So, in World War II, um, my family uh, had five soldiers that were serving, and the four in the army, one in the the Navy. Uh, These are my great uncles, okay? So, my grandmother's brothers. Uh, And one of those five men, uh, actually one of, one of my uncles, uh, great uncles, was killed and um, is buried in Belgium. Uh, two were wounded and got purple hearts. Um, one of them, however, was a guy named Sidney, uh, and um, Sidney had an interesting brush with greatness. So he was selected, um, along with a few other guys, to be sent back to the United States to do sort of a, a, a tour around the U.S. Uh, to try to raise support for the troops. Uh, he was selected by his commanding officer, who was uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, uh, and he was way down the chain, okay? He was a private. I think he was a private, um, but, but he got to meet Eisenhower, um, which is pretty cool. So, I, just, I got a picture of, of that. Um, this isn't a picture of the meeting, but these are the guys that were selected, uh, and that guy right there is my great-uncle Sidney, Sidney Winburn. Uh, So, these guys were selected by Eisenhower to tour the States and visit war plants and raise support for the war in 1944. So, he was sent back from Europe to the U.S., Uh, and they all got to spend time with Eisenhower. I'm guessing it was like five minutes. He was a busy man, but I'm still pretty excited that my family got to meet Eisenhower, right? Um, And uh, if, if you think about greatness, Uh, Ike is a a good example of of what greatness might look like in in the story of man, right? I mean, Ike is a guy who um, maybe becoming president of the United States while his highest office was like one of the least impressive things he did, right? I mean, Ike was… I think I got a picture of Ike. Yeah, there we go. Um, Ike was… I think there have been 43 presidents of the United States. He was the first supreme commander of NATO. There's only been 20 of those. Uh, He was… One of only five ever five-star generals, generals of the army uh, in the United States since the fifth star was invented in in 1944. If you find me later and can name the other four five-star generals without looking it up, I will give you a high five. Uh, uh, And he was also, maybe most impressive, supreme commander allied expeditionary force. Um, just, just a, a big deal, right? Uh, and, and I think, um, when, um, when I kind of read through my genealogy, I was really excited that my family brushed up against somebody like that, right? He is like Eisenhower, like, I mean, in the words of Moses, like, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, right? A big honking deal. Okay. You can take Ike down for a minute. Uh, But then I started thinking about what constitutes greatness. Uh, And and I think we're supposed to ask this question in our story. Let's talk about Nimrod for a minute. Because in this genealogy, he is by far the most impressive. You notice everything that was said about Nimrod? It's it's a weird story buried in a long genealogy, but we're told uh, Nimrod was the first on earth to become a mighty warrior. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and so famous that they made up a slogan about it, right? Like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. He, he had a kingdom. He's the first person to have a kingdom in the Bible, so the first king in the Bible, including Babel and Erech and Akkad, um, and then he went into Assyria and built all these cities, Nineveh and reboth and Kelah and Rezin. Um, he was a big honking deal. Here's the question. Here's the question. Is Nimrod in the story a good guy or a bad guy? He's, he sounds pretty good, right? He's a mighty warrior. Um, but I want to suggest that Nimrod actually um, is the, the negative example in the story of how not to bring people together together. So uh, let's look at Nimrod for a minute. Uh, we're told he's a mighty warrior. Uh, the word for Hebrew, and, uh, the Hebrew word for mighty warrior is Gabor. Everybody say Gabor. Gabor has only shown up one time so far in the Bible. Um, if you remember where, you get a gold star. Um, gabor showed up in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. It's the story of the depravity of humanity before the flood. And in that story, God is explaining um, why the flood's going to happen. And it's because, it's weird, uh, but the angels, the fallen angels are sleeping with women and having these, these giant children, uh, and we're told that they are gibor, right? They are, they are mighty warriors. I don't like the translation mighty warrior. I think we should say uh, gibbor means a man of violence. That's what, that's what the Gibor are. They're men of violence, and so um, the worth is so filled with violence that God sends the flood. Here, after the flood, we are getting back to where we used to be. We are getting back to having men of violence. Men of violence who um, conquer other peoples and build cities and make kingdoms and make empires. Um, by the way, the name Nimrod is Hebrew for we will rebel. We will rebel, right? And there is only one person you can rebel against when you are the first king, and that's God. Um, in fact, I think we can make an argument um, that, and and this is made by a number of scholars, including Tim Mackey, that the Old Testament is the most, um, the earliest and most articulate challenge to the idea of monarchy. Uh, that in the Old Testament, kings are almost always bad. Even when we get good kings like King David, it's a concession to the sinfulness of Israel who want to be like all the other nations. Uh, And in this moment, as Nimrod founds um, the empire of Babylon, the capital is Babel, and the empire of Assyria, the capital is Nineveh, the two empires that will be the greatest enemies of the people of Israel throughout the entire story of Scripture, Um, We are to see Nimrod as, I think, not the seed of the woman, but the seed of the serpent. Um, And yet, boy, he just fits our values, right? Hey, here's a hard-charging, passionate, driven guy who conquers countries, and uh, he's the sort of person you'd like to meet in your genealogy. So, I think part of the challenge for the people of God um, in this idea of getting a fresh start is we need to reassess um, what our values are. We need to reassess um, how we think God will bring us together. We need to reassess what it means to be part of the kingdom of heaven. And that's what Zechariah's doing in our story today. Uh, in, in his depiction of Messiah, Zechariah has some really radical ideas. He says the Messiah um, is going to be a Messiah who saves us from our sins, who is merciful, who brings light in the darkness who brings peace. I think Zechariah is asking us to reassess what makes us family, what unites us as family. Uh, And the work of Jesus um, will be, at least partly, to provide a means of uniting all the family of humanity again as we were once united, but not through power and violence, right? not through the path of Nimrod and... Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar and Napoleon and so many others, through the path of Jesus, through the path of peace and suffering, through the cross. I think Jesus calls us to reassess all our ideas of power and coercion and violence and greatness. And I recognize that in our daily lives, most of us are not inclined to try to overthrow governments and create new kingdoms. Um, But I think all of us are tempted down the path of Nimrod. All of us are tempted down this idea that through power and coercion, we can get what we want. This happens a lot in marriage. Uh, I've been listening to a guy named Andrew Marshall. Andrew Marshall is a marriage counselor who says there are seven deadly sins of communication in marriage, but the number one sin is what he calls the I'm right, you're wrong communication sin, right? And very simply, it says, hey, in this argument, I'm right and you're wrong. And the only way we can get over this argument is for you to admit that I'm right and you're wrong. Anybody ever had an argument like that before? Yeah, let's be honest. Everybody put your hand in the air. Okay? Uh, maybe not with your spouse. Maybe you've had that argument with your sibling. Maybe you've had that argument. Oh, I saw some siblings looking at each other uncomfortably. Um, maybe you've had that argument with a friend. Maybe with a coworker. Uh, Marshall says it's a game we play um, that can't be won. Right? That when we think um, we're going to solve our problems through power, through being louder or smarter or more articulate or more right than someone else, um, we are building a relationship on brokenness. And I can say exactly the most hurtful thing that will cut you down to size. I can make it all about you and not about me, um, but in the end, it doesn't bring unity, right? Just as national unity is not built on the coercive power of the king, so family unity isn't built on the coercive power of one spouse to out-argue the other, one sibling to out-argue the other, etc. As long as we want to be louder or smarter or righter until we stand triumphant over the other. We are simply trying to be like a mighty hunter before the Lord. We want to be a gibbor. Um, by the way, uh, it's not just in conflict that we do this. We value power and strength in all kinds of areas in our lives. Um, Think about the people that we respect in our culture, those people that we go to hear speak or read their books, those folks that we want to learn their seven habits or their three keys or their ten steps. Um, they're almost always people that have been successful in business or in politics or uh, in, in, in some area that made them famous. And there's nothing, that's great, right? That's wonderful. But I wonder do we have the same esteem for our parents? Do we have the same esteem for our kids' teachers? Do we have the same esteem for the older Christian who sits in our pew? Do we consider that we could learn not just from some great CEO, but from our own employees? Not just for some great marriage counselor, but from our children? Our political philosophy is stuck in this rut, isn't it? Our political philosophy in general is win with power, win at any cost. I'm sure it was some politician who once said, if the law is on your side, argue the law. If the facts are on your side, argue the facts. If neither the law or the facts are on your side, defame your opponent every way possible, right? Um, I'm sorry, that was actually all politicians that said that. Um, I think the challenge for us as the people of God is to begin to reassess our values, right? To reassess what leads to success or hope or promise, to reassess how the family of God comes back together. What if the way to restore the family of humanity under the fatherhood of God is to stop trying to win, Stop trying to control others. Stop trying to have power over others. Stop keeping the path of Nimrod. What if in our relationships we became more interested in righteousness than self righteousness? More interested um, in getting it right than being right? I think the fresh start that God calls us into in the story after the flood and in the story of Advent comes when we reassess what we want from life who we want to become, and what victory will look like. We see this in Zechariah's prophecy. Um, We see it uh, in in the story Zechariah loved, right? Uh, For a child has been born to us, a son given to us, authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So I come back to my story uh, and I and I think about um, what should impress me most about my family history. Maybe the impressive part of my family history is not our brushes with greatness. Uh, maybe the impressive part of my family history uh, is the citizen soldiers, my great uncles, who gave their lives that this nation might live. Maybe it should be on the mother uh, of my great uncles who far from being impressed by the medals and the honors and the celebrity that might have come, simply sat by her bed in desperate prayer every night, hoping that most of her boys would come home from the war. I want to read you uh, the obituary of my youngest great-uncle. His name was Harry. He was one of um, the five men, will you just put that next slide up for me? Um, I know you can't read it, but these are the names of the five men in my family who served in World War II. Um, this is Harry's obituary. Harry, Windborn, Harry Miller Winborn, 85, of the 6,000 block of Indian Trail, passed away April 9, 2008 in Sentara Hospital, surrounded by his family. Harry was born September 6, 1922 in Nancement County. He was the son of late John Talbot and Linda Wolfenden Winburn. He was preceded in death by a son, John Edward Winburn, and 11 brothers and sisters. He was a proud U.S. Army World War II veteran, where he was wounded and received a Purple Heart. He was retired from the U.S. Postal Service and was owner-operator of Winburn's Auto Parts and Winburn's Grocery. He will be sadly missed by his wife of 67 years, Vivian Copeland Winburn. One son, Harry Stuart Winburn of Norfolk, two daughters, and their husbands. He was the proud grandfather of three grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. The funeral will be held, committal to follow, family and friends may join. Harry will be remembered for giving to others and never asking anything for himself. He was devoted to God, his wife, and his children, and will be sadly missed. Harry was the uncle who gave me my first ride on a tractor when I was four years old. I didn't know he was a war hero. Uh, I didn't know that he was um, a man of God. I didn't know that he was a faithful husband with children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. See, he wasn't a Gabor. He wasn't a man of the name. Neither he nor any of my uncles are names that you're going to recognize. Um, But they fought a war and they also helped make a peace. And then they came home and they did regular life. And maybe the story of the kingdom of God is not about the greatness of kings and emperors, or even soldiers. It's striking to me that I gravitated to those soldiers first in my own genealogy. maybe even this requires the reassessment of the kingdom of God, that violence isn't God's solution to evil. It is what evil does to the Prince of Peace. Ultimately, violence loses. Even death cannot defeat Christ." And the kingdoms that Nimrod started of Babylon and Assyria fell into the dustbin of history alongside Rome and the greatness of Alexander and the grand army of Napoleon and so many other kingdoms. But what remains still to this day is a two billion person strong community, not defined by nationality or ethnicity or class or language, a kingdom unlike any other in this world with values so different that they are hard to compare." Nimrod had the first kingdom in the story of the Bible. Jesus gets the last. And every day, we're offered the choice to reassess what matters, what we will value, who we want to become. Like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, or like Jesus, a crucified peacemaker, the Lord made flesh. Thanks be to God. Amen.